0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to No Lasting City, probably the second best podcast in the world. I'm Matthew Johnston and with me today is Andrew Young and Young Toby. No Lasting City is a ministry of Riverbend Bible Church here in Hastings, New Zealand. And our goal with this podcast is to distract you from the mundane and to ravish your minds with the glory of God manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our guest today is returning back to No Lasting City. We're so thrilled to have Dr. James Dolazil with us today. James, welcome back. First to No Lasting City,
1: gentlemen. Thanks for having me back,
0: listeners. James is a uh, assistant professor of theology in the School of Divinity at Can University. He's a graduate of the Masters University and Masters Seminary as well as Westminster Theological Seminary. He's involved in Radius Bible Training Institute in Bakersfield, California, and the author of several books. James, we love the fact that you've joined us back here, and um, just want to ask you, tell us a little bit about how you've been doing since you've last been with us, what you're up to, how ministry's going, how uh, how life is going for you.
1: Uh, thanks for asking. Uh, very well, still continuing teaching. uh full-time here at radius theological institute in bakersfield california so that's a 12-week program kind of covering uh core areas of christian doctrine and i teach most of it though visiting professors come in now and then so i i get a little break when they come to town uh and that's that's going well and we're i'm encouraged by the students that we have and then also as you mentioned uh still teaching uh for cairn university uh just north of philadelphia pennsylvania and have been on the faculty there since 2013. so my teaching uh continues uh normal stride uh, in addition just some uh preaching some conferencing on occasion a bit of a bit of research and writing uh i've agreed to write a book on angelology but they've given me a very generous deadline so uh I can that that will be a, some years in the making. Uh, it more more closely uh, working in issues of Christology and then theology proper. So current, currently working on an encyclopedia entry on divine eternity and time in the created order.
2: Hey, well, so. James, we love to ask you about theology proper and 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 just the doctrine of God and and those sorts of things and. And so we we'd love to ask you today about the creator creature distinction and would would you be able to explain to us what it is is it something that's important uh does it affect um other aspects of of Christian theology and life um and and just just yeah what is that and 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 how's that useful for us
1: Yeah we should say uh I think everyone recognizes a creator-creature distinction, and I want to say that even for those that suppress the truth in unbelief, they're suppressing the truth of the creator in unbelief, particularly uh, as he's revealed in the things that are made. You can think of Romans 1 20 um, and 21 that says that God has made himself known among men his invisible attributes, divine power, uh, uh, eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen through the things that are made. And again, that the fact that things are not the sufficient reason for themselves. and And as you ask why this and why that, and you trace that back, you come to the one from whom are all things. And we're told that man even naturally knows that, but that though he knows God, he does not honor him as God or give him thanks. And I think the first thing we should say about the creator creature distinction is that it indicates on the Creator's side, the one who is the giver of all things, the one from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, both revealed to us on the pages of Holy Scripture and rightly concluded by the observation of His handiwork, um, both that He is and also that we moral creatures, at least uh, angels and humans, are obligated to give Him thanks for being creator and sustainer of all things. Um, and so this even says in Acts 14 that he did not leave himself without witness, uh, even to the unbelievers, and that he gave them rains and fruitful harvests. Uh, all of these things are indicators that the relationship between the creator and creature is not one in which we do for God and he does for us. It's it's not like the relationship with a big brother who might have you know a little more wisdom, a little more savvy, uh, a little more strength, Uh, But nevertheless, he's in a kind of give and take. It really is the relationship in which God gives to all, but yet receives from none. And I think that maybe that last part is getting more into the theology of it. Um, What is the nature of the creator-creature distinction? I think in terms of the importance of it in Scripture, uh, Andrew, primarily, it's not primarily presented in Scripture as the answer to the question, why... Something rather than nothing at all, though that is the ultimate sort of why question in the realm of philosophy and metaphysics why something rather than nothing at all? Certainly, the doctrine of creation and the identity of God as creator um, and the act of creation by which He brings all things into being that have come into being all of that identifies Him as creator. But in terms of the importance of it in scripture, It's presented in terms of establishing both our moral and religious obligations. So you can think of something like Deuteronomy 10, where he says, what does the Lord require of you but to love the Lord your God um, and to obey him uh, and then to love him with, you know, all of your soul, all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength, this kind of total obligation. It really is the creator creature. And then the reason he gives because he owns all things. So why is God Lord of all things? Because he's the creator of all. Why is God to be obeyed? Same reason, because he's the creator of all. Why is God to be loved most uh, and preeminently? Because he's the one who gives to all life, breath, and all things. So this, this position of God as absolute creator, at least as far as the religious importance of it, it establishes the basis of our serving him, loving him worshipping him obeying him i mean it's it's really definitive of kind of the our our daily walk that that relationship so that's kind of on the why is it important i think the challenge and, and you can that's well attested in various passages of scripture the challenge is at least in theology is characterizing the creator creature distinction appropriately So even even just by saying creator-creature distinction, uh, to understand that distinction, we're going to have to understand what it means for God to be creator, and certainly there are disagreements uh, with regard to even the answer to that question. How is it that God is creator? Um, Creation ex nihilo says that he's absolute creator, that from nothing he called things which were not being, uh, Romans 4.17. Uh, that the angels and the and the twenty four elders worship him in in Rome uh, Revelation four eleven and they said that you created all things and by your will they existed. Um, so is creatorhood just a divine being who tinkers with some unformed stuff the way that like a carpenter might be able to take a pile of lumber and a bucket of nails and a hammer and do something with it or even is or even is the something itself from God. Um, so the first thing to establish is the universality of creatorhood is if we relativize creatorhood to being God tinkering with the available stuff, kind of more of a cosmic shaper and manipulator than an absolute first cause. He's more of a, of a kind of um, builder than an absolute creator on that scheme. So I think the, maybe the first important thing is to identify what we mean when we say creator we mean the one from whom are all things, not just the biggest and most strong builder of things, right? So I, I think that's just part of appreciating that distinction is appreciating the that the absolute comprehensiveness of God's creation with regard to the world, even like even for us. If I were to build a bookshelf, uh, I would I would require some tools and some materials in order to do that. And so while I may be able to impose form on matter, I don't actually make the matter exist. I just tinker with it to reconfigure its appearance and make it serviceable to me. What we want to say is that's not, that's not how God relates as creator as just simply one who manipulates the available stuff. So maybe that's the first, the first thing we should say is getting that clear. But uh, I said, well, go ahead. You, You had a question.
2: No, it's just just thinking. So, I'd like, it really establishes a a stark contrast between everything created and God in a totally separate category. And I think, I think what you're saying is we we don't have a there's not degrees of being that God is better than us in a in an improved sense, but a totally absolute separate distinction. Is that is that right?
1: Yeah, and I th- I th- it is correct. I think the way we need to characterize it is that God is the one most fundamentally, who makes things to be. And if you kind of want to get down to the hard, kind of the, the hard core center of this doctrine of creation... It's not not just that God makes things to be distinguished. So we have what some theologians call sort of second creation, the sense in which after things are made, then there's a kind of separation and a reconfiguration from the dust to the ground. He can fashion the body for man. Um, He can separate the sea from the dry land and give man a place of habitation. There's a kind of uh, act of creation that is a separation and a configuration of material that he himself has already made to be. But more fundamental than that, and that I mean that's significant. It's huge. But more fundamental is the making things to be, and I think it's that existential language that you find in Revelation four eleven or Romans uh, four seventeen, um, or even John 1.3, uh, where John uses the word againita, uh, coming to be, and where he says that nothing that has come to be, uh, has come to be apart from the word, um, who is God and who is with God. And he uses the language of coming to be, um, not so much coming to be this or coming to be that, but coming to be at all. You know what I'm after? As opposed to not, if yeah. I can put it in, in philosophical terms, not so much form, as existence. And I don't, and by that, I don't mean not form. Certainly he makes us to be a kind of thing. He makes me to be a human kind. He makes a dog to be a a dog kind. He makes a cat to be a cat kind, that sort of a a plant to be a plant kind. Certainly he distributes the forms or the sortal distinctions between things, but we, it would be a mistake to reduce creation to nothing but that, a kind of sorting out of material things. What we should say is, that he most primarily makes us to be. And of course he also assigns us our sorts or our forms to be this kind or that kind. But most fundamentally, the most fundamental reality in the creature is the principle of existence Uh, without exist. Like a thing can exist and not be a human, but a thing cannot be human and not exist. you get what I'm after? So between like my humanity and my existence, by which my humanity is, you know, on this side of nothingness, as opposed to the other side of nothingness, uh, the thing that really the thing that really constitutes me as as real and as being is not the kind of thing I am it's that in virtue of which the kind of thing I am actually is which is to say active existence God is the one who immediately confers the act of existence on all that has existence by way of reception which is to say everything not God that really is the kind of hardcore of this doctrine theologically, that he's the giver not just of this and of that, but of is itself, of the act of being itself. Um, and that that's gonna lead to that's gonna lead to a sense of radical dependency on the part of the creature. That the creature, I don't just have, you know, what do I have from God? Life, breath, you know, Paul says in, in Acts 17, 25, and all things. Then three verses later, 1728, he says, in him, we live, move. And and then he gets to the like, then he gets to the very, very deepest reality in us and have our being or are or exist Mm. so that like more fundamental than living is being because nothing can live and not be, but things can not live and yet be like a mineral or something like that. So being is the most fundamental reality in every creature In so much as the creature, and this is going to get into a little bit of how do we distinguish creator and creature in as much as the creature is not identical with its active existence. It must have its active existence as a gift conferred upon it by its maker. Um, And I think that if you kind of want to get down to what's the difference between God and creatures, we could go through all sorts of things. He's stronger than we are. He's all wise. He's omnipresent. We can talk about all sorts of ways in which the distinction is different manifested to us or revealed to us. but if you want to get right down to the very core of it, it's that God does not receive his active existence, rather he is his active existence, whereas we receive our active existence from him. and that in the everything else, so to speak is an elaborate all the other aspects of the creator creature distinction are really an extrapolation and an elaboration of that fundamental distinction between God and all that is not God.
2: So it really ties in with the doctrine of aseity. Is that would you say that as quite? Yeah,
1: aseity is a is an implicate of God being His own act of existence. Uh, that which doesn't, you know, we uh, the medievals would say, God is not a Hobbin's essay. He's not a haver of existence. I know that Matthew says that every day. He's like, just remember, you're not a Hobbin's essay. Um, I'm not sure that like works well in the pulpit, but it. But the idea does, even if the words don't, um, the idea is that you are a haver of existence, but God doesn't so much have existence as God is his own existence. So that between God and his existence, there's not a possession. In other words, he's not an entity that possesses it as a principle of his being. In fact, there are no principles of God's being because God is his own reason for being. And so for that, like a principle of being is a cause or a source, like, I have an existential principle of being which is my act of existence i have a formal principle of being which is the principle by which i am this kind of thing a human kind i have a material principle of being which is to say the principle of quantity that receives my my essence and then i have other principles like principles of accidents uh that's to say accidental forms of being like speaking or sitting or forgetting these are all accidental states or actions um In other words, I'm a bundle, I'm a composite bundle of a whole bunch of causal principles all sort of hanging together at once. That, I would argue that if you want like a kind of non-technical description of what makes a creature a creature, that does. That does. Being composed Mm. of parts which function as principles of being, whether material, formal, existential, accidental, um, which is a kind of formal uh, determination of being, these, these are the thing, The existence in that way, as a haver of existence and as a haver of attributes, um, as a haver of essence, it is that way of existing that indicates not God and thereby dependent upon him. And it's the, it's the absence of all that in God, that dependence and that multipartedness that really establishes his, to your point, his aseity. Why is God of himself? If God were composed of parts, he wouldn't be of himself because he would have a dependency relationship upon principles of being, which would be f- more fundamental than he is. Like, I don't know, like Toby's humanity is more fundamental than Toby, the man, Toby's, Toby's, uh, you know, Toby's Toby, the man depends upon the essence of humanity to be a man of this sort, the human sort. um, Toby is Toby's existence is more fundamental than Toby, and it's actually even more fundamental than his essence because his essence only is real in him because its existence confers reality on it um but in my point is like what is Toby? Toby is actually a network of causes that are hanging together in a wonderful unity, making him be this man.
2: We're gonna put that's, that in under his email signature
1: <laughs> that's gonna be. Yeah, that's gonna be like if you want to do like identity politics, just say something like that. Yeah, like I'm a I'm I'm a compo- I'm a composite of many principles of being, so wonderfully hanging together, and here I am. But you're a bundle, <laughs> you're a package. God isn't a bundle. You know the am after like he's he is his own is. Um, he is his he's I am. He's not uh, he's not a haver of his is. He is in virtue of himself. So you could put it a little differently. Like why God? And the answer is God. Why? Michael the Archangel, and the answer is God, who confers essay, the act of existence, on the nature of Michael the angel. Um, does that I, I think I maybe since I brought up angels just briefly, I think if we if we're going to say that angels are by nature immaterial creatures, then we have to be careful not to like I think it's a mistake we sometimes make. We locate creatorhood in particular features of particular kinds of creatures and then we say well why do why you know how do what to be a creature is to be material but but that's not true because you have creatures that don't have a material part they are created for, they are purely they're created forms not composed of form and matter not distended in space but still creatures in the case of angels and so you can't say well materiality you know that's creature that's creatureliness Materiality characterizes the vast majority of creatures, but it doesn't characterize creatureliness as such. Does that make sense? So we don't we don't want to like pick we don't want to pick the wrong feature and try to say this is the sine qua non without which not creature. Because then, if you pick materiality, what do you do with the angels? So, like, this is kind of a question: Where do we locate? creator creatureliness. Like we've talked a little bit about being creator is the one who gives to all fundamentally existence. But what makes creaturely, creatures creatures, I would, I, I want to say two things. Normally, if I, if I ask someone, how do you know that you're a creature or how do you know that you're finite? Let's kind of look at both of those at once. Um, it's not a wrong answer. And it's a majority Christian answer nowadays to say, well, I'm a creature because God made me. And so, therefore, since I'm a thing made, I'm the creation of my maker, um, and that's not incorrect. How do you know that you're finite? Because because I was made to be. The same answer is given. I'm finite because I was made. What I'm intre- and both of those are correct answers. Uh, my, co- I guess the challenge is: are they? Are the? Do they exhaust the answer? Is there something? This is, I guess, what I want to get after. Is there something about? That's kind of an extrinsic answer, which is to say, I'm a creature because someone outside me conferred a state of being or more, most fundamentally existence on, you know, on me. But what I would want to know is, is there a way in which we could just analyze the creature and by an analysis of the creature actually conclude that this is a creature without... My point is, I don't want to put God out of the picture. I just want to say, is there something about my constitution that denotes creatureliness, uh, which is to say dependence upon a cause of being. Um, Is there an intrinsic, not just an extrinsic explanation of my being creature, but is there an intrinsic account of it that I can give as well? And I want to say, yes, in as much as I am not identical with various principles of my nature, I'm not identical with my humanity. Like if being James and being human were the same thing, then how come Andrew isn't James? but he's human. Do you know what I'm at? So there's a certain sense in which my humanity is a principle with which I am not strictly identical. Otherwise, Andrew and I could not have the same essence or the same nature, but we do. Not the same numeric one, but the same kind. We're in the same genus and species. Not the um, same brain
2: and, though either, eh? What? <laughs> Our brains are <laughs> at different know. levels as well, James.
1: Well, but if we are both rational animals, uh, okay, to take it like that, then being rational animal and being this particular one, you know, James or Toby or Andrew, um, is, is not, doesn't, it doesn't account for why we're not all the same rational animal. And so the thing is, I'm not actually identical with humanity. I'm a particular instantiation of a humanity, which actually is is instantiated beyond myself. I'm a particularization of a generic and specific nature. Um, but I'm not identical with that nature. Otherwise I'd be every man, but I'm not. So there's a sense like now we're kind of probing it. Like, how do I know that I'm a made to be thing? That's the question. Like, and I'm not just looking well, because, because I have a maker who's outside me, who made me, but is there something about my own manner of being that signals that do you get what I'm after? And the, the fact that I'm not identical with my own humanity and more p- importantly, the fact that I'm not identical with my own existence, that I'm a haver of existence, but I'm not existence itself, um, indicates that I'm actually an entity that depends upon parts. And as an entity that depends upon parts, there has to be something that accounts for the togetherness of those parts, that is to say, there's got to be a there's got to be something that accounts for the togetherness of like say my hum- my form and my matter like my humanity and the matter that happens to you know have this humanity. Uh, there's got to be something that accounts for the togetherness of my existence and my essence um, or my humanity, uh, and it's the fact that it is humanity and the fact that it is existence does not account for why it comes to why they are together. In other words, I don't exist essentially. I have existence, but it's not the nature of humans to exist. Just like you could always pick like an extinct species, like take the dodo bird. It's not the nature of the dodo bird to exist because otherwise, where are they? Do you go to am after? Like how was existence removed from their natures? Because existence and essence aren't identical in creatures. They're principles of our being. And they're principles of our being that are not necessarily united. It's not, necess- it's not necessary strictly and metaphysically that dodo birds exist. Like i am I'm, I'm okay with the fact that probably they're all gone for good. Well, I mean, I wish they weren't, but you know what I mean? Like, but probably they are. In which case then existence is not currently being given as gift to any essence of dodo bird, something like that. My point then is, it's actually the very complexity and the compositeness and the dependency of my own natural way of being. And the fact that those parts do not exist in a necessary unity with each other, that is to say, they can come apart. My soul can leave my body. Um, now, I don't believe in annihilationism, so I don't believe my existence is going to leave my soul, but it's only because God has ordained it that way. It's not because it's a strict impossibility. Do you get know what I'm after? It won't happen, but it's not a strict impossibility. Um, metaphysically speaking. So then I'm not the reason for myself. I'm dependent on a whole bunch of principles of being, and I'm dependent on whatever supplies unity. And here we are to uh, whatever supplies unity to those principles of my being. I guess in that respect, Andrew, like this is, these are ways in which we can analyze and start to characterize the creator creature distinction and really appreciate how radical and fundamental and non-relative that distinction is.
0: Thank you, James. You are listening to No Lasting City. We're joined by Dr. James Dolazel, the author of a wonderful book, All That Is In God, Evangelical Theology and the Challenge of Classical Christian Theism. James, thanks for that answer and breaking that down. Um, there's a lot uh, to consider there and a lot to think through. As we continue to to consider these big God matters and all that is in God and classical theism, I um, just want to continue to to ask you some more questions um, could you uh, answer for us uh, a question like what is God's transcendence um, God being transcendent and also God's incomprehensibility uh, and why why do they both matter
1: let's can I take the second first is that all right Matthew
0: you are free to choose Brother
1: all right. I just didn't. If there was a strict logical order, I didn't want to mess it up. Um, From the freedom but, of
0: your own inclination, you always have that room to
1: to choose. All right.
0: Wherever so your affection about,
1: drives you. All right. Well, I'm gonna. I want to start with your second point: incomprehensibility, and 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 really try to make the argument that that's actually an extension of what we've just been talking about. Now, the question, and Andrew raised it earlier. I don't know if it was before we started recording or after. Uh, with regard to does Scripture ground this? this kind of um, absoluteness that we've been talking about. I think it does in two ways, Um, both in terms of all the statements regarding transcendence, which we'll come to in a second. It seems that not seems the best way to understand God is as the one who gives to all, but himself is not among the, the dependent entities, auseity or self-sufficiency. In which case then God cannot depend. If God's the absolute sufficient first cause of being, he cannot be a being that is caused. Therefore he can't be a being composed of parts because parts function as causes in things composed of them. Uh, And so the first and absolute, now, how do we know God's the first cause of all being? You could get there through a natural theological argument, like the unmoved mover argument of Aquinas. I think that's a that's actually that kind of cosmological argument is a sound reasoning process. Historically, Reformed Protestants have happily endorsed um, that position, even if it's sort of fallen out of fashion of late. Uh, but also, you could just open. And Thomas Aquinas says this is actually how God shows His great mercy. He doesn't leave everybody to the uh, mercy of a uh, cosmological argument. He actually gives us Holy Scripture, and we open and we read, in the beginning, God, and then from there, we, we know divine primacy just by the surface text of Scripture stipulating it for us. Um, but there are some things we can conclude from that. If God is the one from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, Romans eleven thirty six, 36, if he's the one by whom all things are, um, then th- there are certain things that can't be true of him. Like, he himself cannot be the consequent of some cause. That is to say, he cannot be the product of a cause if he's the one from whom are all things, because then he wouldn't be the one from whom are all things. He himself would be from the causes, and then whatever conferred unity on the causes. So like the doctrine of divine simplicity, or sometimes positively characterized as pure actuality, that is to say, God is not composed of actualizing principles and then principles that received, receive act. So he's pure act. Um, those things are necessary implications for the text of scripture just to be true. Now, the text of scripture doesn't say them that way, but they're the kinds of things that for the text of scripture to be believed as true, they must correspondingly also be the case, um, if I can put it like that. So if God, and I want to come to incomprehensibility through that route, if God is simple, if he is unbounded in his actuality, if he's not not, um, a nature contracted to a limiting principle, like my soul is contracted to the principle of my body so that my soul doesn't currently exist beyond the bounds of my body, there's a certain sense in which my matter works as a... um, as a principle that circumscribes my soul, um, you can say the same thing about the essence of a cat. Um, cats are cats in virtue of the of the uh, form of felinity, felineness. Uh, and yet that felineness has a certain limitation, particularly it's limited intrinsically by the matter of the cat that has the essence or has the or has the um, the substantial form. So that parthood, actually results in contractedness if i can put it like that like one part actualizes the other part receives and limits the actualizing principle so like my active existence is potentially infinite but actually it's not infinite it's only my active existence and if you know if, if i'm if i'm older than toby i had existence and toby didn't have existence um my existence and toby's existence isn't my existence and my existence isn't the same as the existence of the books on the shelves behind me. If those things went out of existence entirely, I might be able to survive that loss. Now, depending on which book it is, I may cry or not, but you know what I'm saying? Like I'm, But my existence is not the existence of... It's not boundless. It's actually bound dead. It's finite. This is also why my mind is a... This is also what constitutes finitude. finitude. The structure of finitude is parts actualizing and being contracted by their receiving principles. Like that's what makes a thing not infinite. That's what puts limits on being. That's even what put, puts limits on angels, that their acts of existence are limited by the essences that have them so that the essences actually circumscribe the act of existence. But God, but here's, and that's also to the point that you brought up, Matthew, that's also why God is is, that's also why creatures are at least in principle comprehensible to finite minds. Because potentially, I can get my mind around something that is bounded. My mind being finite, my mind actually understands things as parts in relation uh, to each other. So if I want to understand what a human is, I'm going to need to understand its material principle, and I'm going to need to understand its material principle. And in so much as those principles are finite, one delimits the other. um, In so much as those are finite, I'm able to comprehend something that is sort of put together that way but if something doesn't have edges, can I put it like this? Like if something doesn't have a principle that circumscribes its actuality, the way that like my essence circumscribes my existence, thereby making my existence finite. If something doesn't have that, then it cannot be comprehended by a mind that can only comprehend finitude. Do do you get what I'm after? Like this is that if my mind cannot comprehend the infinite and I think we should agree, I think that should just be something we should elicit agreement on that among all Christians very early on yeah, uh, I mean. that the inf- that the finite cannot contain the infinite. Like, and so everyone raises their hand and says, yes, I agree. Okay, great. Andrew agrees. Toby's not sure. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Matthew agrees. All right. We're all agreed. So, I mean, as soon as we, as soon as we agree that the finite cannot contain the infinite and by that, I mean, physical, But also metaphysical, that which is boundless in being cannot be contained by that which isn't. My mind is finite. My mind understands multi-parted things, and even that can be difficult. I don't even understand all multi-parted things. But in principle, my mind could comprehend multi-parted things. But if you come to God who can't be multi-parted because the first cause of being can't depend upon principles of being, which would be parts— then you have a partless being, which is to say there's not one part delimiting another part, in which case then God is just boundless active existence. He's pure, boundless dynamism and act in his nature. I, I know why that must be true, because otherwise he could not be the creator of all things. And there would be no good reason for the world if that were not how God is but that, that is a far cry from comprehending it. And I think sometimes people are concerned, as soon as you say God's pure act, people automatically assume that you think you know something about God more than they do. <laughs> Actually, what, you're, what we're really saying is that there's something about God that is totally beyond my ability to comprehend, and I know why he must be that way. Otherwise, there's no re- there's no sufficient reason for the world and god isn't the god of romans 11:36 but being the one from whom and through whom and to whom are all things and therefore necessarily partless is in fact the reason why i being finite cannot comprehend him so like when i say he's pure act and he's without parts and all that I, i'm that's not actually moving toward comprehension that's actually expressing in human words a manner of being that exceeds all comprehension Now, if you want to tell me I'm wrong about that, you know, I'll I'll, I'll fight you to the death, so to speak, theologically and say, no, a multi-party God will never do. And here are a thousand and one reasons just for starters, why not? But those aren't a thousand and one reasons that get me closer to comprehending him. Do you get what I'm after? Like, those are actually a thousand and one reasons why you can't comprehend him. Um, It's because he's pure act and it's because he's simple and without parts that I cannot, as it were, um, have an articulated knowledge. I can articulate the non-articulation of of the knowledge of God, but I can't articulate um, God as such because there's not a bit of this and a bit of that to put together. Um, all right, so I know that's a little bit that's a little bit a- abstractive, but if you want to get the takeaway, the takeaway is. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him. First Kings 8:27, Solomon says, "Will God indeed dwell in the Earth? Indeed, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built?" And I want to say by extrapolating from that principle, nothing in the created order is adequate to measure God, can contain God. The reason is because God is partless and therefore cannot be circumscribed by some corresponding principle like my mind. Um, And for that reason, God always exceeds in his glory and in his being my knowledge. And this is why we say that he's the one who's exalted above all blessing and praise. Not like, you know, like I never give him enough glory. I never ascribe enough. I never give him worship that's actually adequate to his being because all I can give him is finite expressions of worship ordered toward the infinite, but never equal to the infinite. Uh, and so God is always greater than my greatest thought of him. He always exceeds and is deeper than the deepest thought I have of him. And it's because my thoughts of him in a certain sense are not really taking the measurements of God. God's immeasurable. Um, but I think this gets to it. The creator, To back to Andrew's first question, the creator creature distinction and the manner of it and what it means for the divine being is also the ground for incomprehensibility.
2: James, it's, I'm ready for church on Sunday after after you lifting my mind like that. What's um can you What's the difference between the archetype type distinction and a creator creature distinction? What what can you help us understand that as well?
1: That that's usually applied uh to divine knowledge. Um, I'm like I'm a little. I I know it's used in the reform tradition, and I'm okay with it. I like to kind of qualify it a little bit because it's. Its origins are in Duns Scotus and not Thomas Aquinas. Um, and Duns Scotus is a Franciscan, uh, not not like, I like the Franciscans, all right, but like the Dominicans, uh, Aquinas would not have used that distinction, though I'm not sure if he would oppose it or not. It's just a later distinction that the reform take over from the Franciscan Scotus. Uh, the idea of it is that God has a knowledge uh, that is archetypal in the sense that all knowledge lies with Him. In fact, God doesn't even a haver of knowledge; He is His own knowledge. Like God, God doesn't have wisdom; He is His own wisdom. So that He's not—it's not like there's a distinction between God and His wisdom in God. God and His wisdom are identical in God. Um, so that God has all knowledge and all wisdom. What we know is we know a light we know a light that has been illumined by his light. In his light, we see light. And when people talk about the ectiple, ect is the idea of that which goes out from. So you go through an exit. Um, an ectype is a type that goes forth from or goes out from. So the ectype is the form of knowledge as appropriatable by human minds. The archetype, though, is that uncreated boundless wisdom that is in fact the original. So really what we're after there, Andrew, is the original with knowledge lies in God. The copy or the type that goes forth from God is actually what he makes available to us in the order of revelation, whether you're talking about natural revelation or special revelation. So everything is in a certain sense, a finite, everything luminous or knowable, everything that is intelligible, if we can say it like that is actually a finite copy of the super intelligibility that is God's own intrinsic knowledge. So, but in that respect, the the type, if you can put it like this, is a kind of copy of an infinite knowledge, kind of repackaged into an appropriate appropriate, approachable finite structure. So like Solomon's temple on the hill, God says, this is my dwelling place forever. Solomon says, will God indeed dwell on the earth? The answer is yes, but not in a way where the earth actually is equal to him, so that the Shekinah glory cloud dwells in the Holy of Holies. And yet there's a sense in which you haven't exactly boxed God in the Holy of Holies. What God does is he condescends to place a theophanic form of himself in a room that manifests in a special way his covenantal presence and favor. Among his people. And so we, we say God dwells among his people in that condescended form. Knowledge is like this. He condes he, he, as it were, gives us knowledge by packaging in finite, approachable, articulatable concepts the truth about himself, but we should never mistake those concepts for being um, sort of one-to-one measures of the divine being any more than we would think the Holy of Holies on Mount Zion was a one-to-one measurement, so to speak, of the divine being who manifested his presence in it. Is it. That, is that an- I hope that analogy works, but I think it, it kind of gets helpful. to the it's inner good. logic of this.
0: It really does work. It really, really does break it down there. Um, you know, I, th- I know we're going to continue climbing to transcendence, James, and I really appreciate the incomprehensible um, answer there. In chapter 2 of Berkhoff's Systematic Theology, he has a chapter called The Knowability of God. Um, The first section speaks that God is incomprehensible but yet knowable. And Berkhoff begins by saying this, the Christian church confesses on the one hand that God is incomprehensible, the incomprehensible one, but also on the other hand that he can be known And that knowledge of him is an absolute requisite under salvation. He says also here, The reformers do not deny that man can learn something of the nature of God from his creation, but maintain that he can acquire true knowledge of him only from special revelation under the illuminating influence of the Holy Spirit. And I'm thinking of 1 John 5 verse 20 that says, And we know that the Son of God has come, and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And so I guess we hold in one hand the utter incomprehensibility of God, and in the other hand, we hold the knowability of God. Um, t- talk to us about how they serve each other.
1: I think we should make a distinction between comprehending and knowing. Though often in our English use of those terms, we kind of elide them into each other. So to know is to comprehend, and vice versa. Uh, But we we should be a little precise here and say that comprehend really means to hold a thing so as to completely enclose it. Um, And in that respect, any any knowledge we have of God that's true, we do not as it were have it, we don't contain it in our minds even if we possess knowledge of the truth we don't contain the truth we know so for instance i can say god is love and i can know that truly and i have lots of reasons for saying that natural theological reasons based on his um manifest beneficence and gifts that are showered on just and unjust alike and that gives me indication of generosity and beneficence and i can know that i can know god's love in some kind of Opaque but nevertheless true way through that, then I can also know it more exactly in, uh, in and even more deeply and redemptively, and that you know, and this is love. <laughs> that while we being you know we being sinners, Christ died for us. That God sent forth His Son for He so loved. And then there's a that's something that natural reason does not access the the advent of Christ, the incarnation. Uh, the, the, um, the, the meaning and the significance of his obedience unto death, the meaning of his death on the cross, the theological significance of his resurrection from the dead and of his ascension to the right hand in glory. These are things that natural reason doesn't have access to, but are known only through Holy scripture and the proclamation of the doctrine of the apostles. So there's a, there's a certain sense of which now I'm knowing his love and I'm knowing it better than I knew it just when I saw the rains that fell, for instance, and yet while i can in a certain sense come to know his love more some in some ways through general revelation in in more re, in those redemptive ways only through special revelation even when i know the love of god in christ jesus i do not as it were comprehend it in its totality that is to say I know it truly, and I can know it even more deeply still. But even as I move more deeply into the knowledge of God's love, I don't get closer to the end of it. Do you know what I'm after? Like, I'm not, you know, it's kind of like, I'm doing a study on the love of God. How far have you gotten? Well, I'm almost finished. Really? Is that the kind of thing you could do? Do you know what I mean? Like that, there's something wrong about that. You You don't really finish with it because it's the love of God as it is in God is boundless. It's immeasurable, but he he in a certain sense, he measures out manifestations of his love, and this is what I think we're actually appropriating. When we know his love, it's by way of consequence of the things that he measures out to us reigns for the just and the unjust. The incarnation, which is a created historical event, for instance, I mean, in other words— events some of them natural some of them miraculous and supernatural some of them general some of them redemptive these are all the ways in which he measures out to us the manifestation of his love and what i do is i know the love of God by measure does that make sense but i'm not but i'm not i'm not sizing it up as it is in God and so there's a certain there's a sense of which i know god's love and also the the, the real love of God actually exceeds my knowledge of it So I could never come to you and say, oh, Toby, let's talk about the love of God, because I've totally mastered this. (laughs) This is not, it's, it's not just that it's, that that's theologically kind of offensive. It's that it's actually impossible because if God is love and God is in fact boundless in being, if God and God's love are identical in God, then I would have to contain in my finite mind an infinite datum, so to speak an infinite known object, which I simply can't. In other words, it's not just that I haven't studied hard enough. It's that it's not the kind of thing that I could exhaust. Now I want to be like really quick and say, I think like modern post enlightenment types, we're used to like getting to the bottom of things, solving things, understanding how things work, and then mastering them, you know, marketing it, selling it, enjoying it, moving on. (laughs) Like that's how we are with knowledge. We want to just plumb it out, get to the bottom, dig it down, master it, move on and i think we get a little discouraged when we start to handle something for which there is no end like mm-hmm. i would always tell my students in doctrine of god you don't actually finish coming to you know the knowledge of god you don't you don't complete your knowledge of god because it's not that the completeness of god is not the kind of thing that could be contained by the mind of the creature um, an angel or a human, I mean. Um, and so that's that's something we want to emphasize is there's a distinction between comprehending, which is to know a thing without remainder, so to speak, to get all the way around it with our minds, as opposed to knowing it truthfully. We could distinguish between, even in our English language, we use words, we use a word similar. Prehendere, prehend means to grab onto, to comprehend means to grab on to so as to fully encompass, hence calm but to apprehend is to grab onto so as to lay hold of it, but not necessarily encompass it. And I would argue, if you want to make a distinction, true n- apprehension of God is true, but it's not comprehension. It, mm. Does that does that make sense? And I think if we can distinguish, if we can say all knowing is apprehending, but not all knowing is comprehending. I could say all comprehending is knowing, but not all knowing is comprehending. Some knowing is just apprehending. When the object is infinite and the knower is finite, you'll never do more than apprehend. That doesn't mean that you can't apprehend more deeply. It just means you can never graduate from apprehending to comprehending. Makes,
0: uh, make, that, make, makes a lot of sense. And as I hear you talk uh, about all this, I think of the famous words of Augustine who said, uh, I can see the depth, but I cannot get to the bottom. You know, familiar. Yeah, that's
1: beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. beautiful. It's always, it's
0: always struck me.
1: Oh, let me put in another Augustinism there. Uh, He says, uh, "If if you comprehend God, it is not God you comprehend." There you go. But that doesn't mean that we don't know Him truly, and that we can't come. That we can't grow in the grace and knowledge of God. We can grow, but what we're growing in is we're growing in apprehension, so to speak. We're not eventually getting to comprehension.
0: Mm. So
1: like if you know more of the love of God you've apprehended more and so you can teach others about the love of God in in new and deeper ways but let's not let's be very careful not to portray ourselves as being those that have comprehended that not that that knowledge of him.
0: I love that distinction and um this has been a wonderful wonderful time James. I think a good way to 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 close this out would be if you could help uh someone who would be listening to this someone who's looking into these high truths of God um why why does this all matter what is the what is the great benefit how would you encourage those who hear these things and think well this is some pie in the sky this is akin to which it's not but some minds would perhaps be like this is just akin to how many angels can dance on the pin of a, a head of a pin um how how would you help them to see that all these things truly do matter for the 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 christian life that we live uh, by faith
1: i think i think bef- i mean wh- some of what i've offered here is a more kind of contemplative technical way of expressing ourselves but the fundamental concern and christian conviction is that i'm not sufficient for my life i'm not sufficient for my own existence i don't I'm not the reason I am. Um, I don't even, I can't even guarantee my next breath. Um, From him, I receive life and breath and all things. Acts 17 25. What I need to know is that God is utterly sufficient for these things that concern me. And I, I don't, there is a kind of holy self interest. I mean, Jesus says, that we should fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell. I think he's appealing to our better sense of self interest. A so little, you know, exclusive self interest is bad, but genuine self interest is good. And if, and, and I'm interested in drawing my next breath, <laughs> but I'm, but I'm also not sufficient to guarantee it to myself. And frankly, neither are my fellow humans. I mean, they could put me on a respirator and kind of help me a little bit. But when God withdraws the last, last breath, in other words, what I need to know is, that all things are in his hands and that he is sufficient for all things. If he were not utterly self-sufficient, which requires that he not be composed of parts, that's just a parenthesis, but coming back to our discussion, if God were not utterly self-sufficient, then he couldn't be perfectly sufficient for the things that concern me. And I do think there's a sense in which I want to know that I'm in the hands of one who isn't in the hands of another, but who is the hands who uphold. All things. Do you get what I'm after? And this is these Mm -hmm. doctrines are really ways of expressing and guarding that core Christian conviction. Um, I think in terms of worship, it's also it also is stimulating. Um, It's a real test for us. If it disappoints you to realize that your knowledge will never be equal, or your your worship. And your expressions of praise and adoration of God will never actually be equal to his glory that, you, that there will never be enough worship from you. if that disappoints you, I think it's a it's a reality check on our expectations. It's only idols. it's only false gods that could actually you know be worshipped enough. in fact, a little bit is too much. Um, but the point is a finite being can actually receive enough adoration. Like, right? I don't know, do you know, if you have somebody who's sort of fawning on you and over you and adoring and you say, hey, like enough already, please. But you know, in the Bible, God never says that. God never says, hey, everybody, enough with the worship. Really guys, it's just too much. Like the, the God of heaven and earth, the maker of all things never says anything like that. Uh, in fact, he says the opposite in Isaiah 40. He says, I think it's verse of." 15, 16, thereabouts, he says that Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. And then he goes on to say, more memorably, that the nations are but a drop in the bucket um, and, and that sort of creator creature, that, that radical, non commensurable distinction. When he says that Lebanon is not enough to burn, or its beasts enough for a burnt offering, what he, it's basically like he's saying, cut down every tree, torch every altar, sacrifice every beast. It won't be enough. But but actually, the response of the Christian should be, like, if your God could receive enough worship, that should be alarming to you, that you should, like, panic now if your God can receive enough worship from the creature. If God can say, hey, everybody, that's enough, then your God is finite. Your God is limited. Your God is measurable by the creature. You're worshiping an idol. Stop. Worship the God who can't be worshiped enough. Then, like, then you're actually worshiping the one who's worthy of your worship. Then you're worshiping the one whose greatness is unfathomable, like David says in Psalm 145 3. Worship the one whose greatness cannot be sounded out. I love that statement from Augustine, Matthew, that you brought up. Worship the one whose depths you can see, but whose bottom you can't, because there is no bottom, because there is no last great thing about God. I think this should be rather than ice water on our worship, you know, this is just, Ooh, that just, that just leaves me cold and unfeeling. Like you've got to check yourself if that's your response, because you're actually wanting to worship a God who can be measured by the worship that you give. The joy of worshiping the immeasurable, the uncontainable, the incomprehensible, the one who is not composed of bits, that kind of, the the joy of all that is um, that he will be worthy of your worship forever and ever, that you will never exhaust the joy of worshiping him. If you find joy in worshiping him, there's good news. It doesn't ever end. (laughs) If worship is drudgery, then you're always looking at your clock. You're wanting to, okay, I grant lunch is coming. You get hungry. You look at your watch during the service, but there's a certain sense in which your heart should be, your your heart should be wanting to just abide in his tent forever and to have your heart ravaged in an endless sense of waves of newness of joy, washing over you as you give adoration and praise. But it's only if he's boundless in being that he could be the proper object of that kind of worship and if he could actually offer himself to us that way for all of eternity. Otherwise, I guess I want to say, what's the takeaway? Heaven's going to be very boring if God is in fact composed of parts and finite and thereby exhaustible. All right. So that's that's my big pitch for like these, these things are very important just to animating and, and informing our worship.
0: It's so good. It's so great. Um, this has been truly wonderful, James. We just always appreciate uh, your time. We've had we're humbled by the caliber of guests we've had uh, on No Lasting City from episode to episode, and just to let you know that the people love to hear from Doctor James Dolazel. the 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 amount of downloads that your episodes receive um, is is truly uh, wonderful and remarkable, and just just a testimony to people out there want to hear about all that is in God as much as we can comprehend him with our finite mind. But you you help us to, to understand and see things, um, deep truths. You know, you mentioned it before, and it's always something I keep at the forefront of my mind and try and remind our people here is that we are called by God to continue to grow in grace and in knowledge. That's a call from our God. Um, grace, like the fruit of the Spirit, and knowledge, like the depths of who our God is. And so really just want to thank you again for your time um, here joining us on No Lasting City. We look forward to in the months ahead, having you join us again, if you would. And um, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Well, Matthew, Toby, Andrew, thank you for hosting me.
0: No Lasting City podcast is a ministry of Riverbend Bible Church in Hastings, New Zealand. For more information, please visit our website at riverbend.org.nz or visit us on YouTube. Follow us on social media where you can interact with us or ask us any questions. Our links are in the show notes and we'd love to see you there.